Bible reading today comes from Psalm chapter 14. And you can find that on page 430 of your Red Pew Bibles. Fools say in their hearts, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise who seek after God. They have all gone astray. They are all alike perverse. There is no one who does good. No, not one. They have no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they do bread, as they eat bread. And do not call and do not call upon the Lord. There they shall be in great terror, for God is with the company of the righteous. You would confound the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that deliverance for Israel would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. Second reading comes from Romans 3, starting from verse 1, found on 115. Then what advantages has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, for the first place of the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, although everyone is a liar, let God be proven true, as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judging. But if our injustice serves to confirm the justice of God, what should we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how, God, how could God judge the world? But if through my falsehood God's truthfulness abounds to his glory, why am, I, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why, why not say, as some people slander us by saying that we say, let us do evil so that good may come? Their condemnation is deserved. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks and under the power of sin, as it is written, there is no one who who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Their throats are opened like graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Uh, We have arrived at uh, nearly the end, in a way, the end of this first chunk of Romans. Uh, Romans chapter uh, 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, is one sustained piece 
And what that means is that we're going to have um, the opportunity for uh, question time at the end of the uh, address. Um, just if there's anything over the sort of that chunk you want to just pick up on or clarify, uh, then there's an opportunity to do that. Um, it's quite an important part actually of our life that we have question time from uh, time to time and that it just enables people to engage and interact and push back and all that kind of thing. Um, uh, together it is as a community we uh, come under the word of God and dig into it and wrestle with it and grapple and try and understand. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a thing we do together and question time is one way of kind of expressing that. Um, we, we had a terrific night here on uh, Thursday night actually at the wine, cheese and a conversation about euthanasia and God event. Uh, it wasn't just the encouragement of seeing lots of complete uh, newcomers to church actually arrive with postcards in their hands. Uh, it was quite, quite a, a remarkable thing. Uh, postcards went out as we put, distributed them all around uh, the area and then people saw them and they uh, thought, oh, that's an interesting event, I might come to that. And so they uh, arrived and they knew what the invitation was. It was on the postcard and they wanted to make sure they were coming to the right place. So they came with the postcard and walked in the door with the postcard in their hands. It was just fabulous and pretty encouraging for our Adopt-A-Block program. And in case uh, Ali didn't mention it before, the postcards for Easter are just outside. Uh, but it will put a spring in our step as we do that because it really gets through. I was uh, talking with a marketer. Uh, these are very smart and slightly scary people, the way that they get inside your head. Uh, and the marketer said that you have to have 10, uh, what uh, he called touches, 10 points of just connection before anything even gets through to people. And, and so that means you've got to get through your first nine, right, before you get to the 10th one. And so, so that's, that's what the postcards are sometimes. And then, you know, it just it drops and down, out they come. So uh, it was a great night for that reason, but also was the interest and engagement and integrity with which that conversation, which is a pretty interesting and important conversation, uh, was conducted. One of the things that became clear was that what you think about euthanasia is very much a product of your overall worldview. Uh, it's very much a product of the story that you whisper to yourself about what the world is and what human life is and where it comes from. What wrong is and how it's going to be fixed up, uh, even if it's going to be fixed up, and where it's all headed and how that destiny reaches back into the presence to give clarity and guidance and strength even in the midst of pain and suffering. Now, a worldview is not really something that you can argue for or against. Since a worldview is the standpoint, the, the axioms, if you like, from which you argue for and against other things. Rather, a worldview is more like something that you inhabit, you, you indwell, uh, or to change the metaphor a little bit, uh, the glasses that you put on to make sense of what's around you. And the, the, the power, the, the, the truthfulness, the compellingness of a worldview, in part, is a product of whether as you engage in your society and in the activities of your life and all of that kind of stuff, you can navigate your way through those things confidently and cleanly. You don't bump up into realities that your worldview can't handle. If, if that's how it goes, then actually you've got to do some adjusting, right? Nor at the same time missing out on the things that life offers because your worldview causes you to engage them in the wrong way. And throughout Romans 1 to 3, Paul is supplying us with one of the crucial worldview elements 
There are only really four elements in a worldview, and this is one of the crucial ones. It's the one that's both most agreed on in our culture. Namely, that something has gone horribly wrong with the world. That, that there is a, there's, a mess, there's a lot of mess around. We're not just talking individually and personally and psychologically, mentally, but, but at a level of society, economically, socially, environmentally. Something has gone horribly wrong with our world. And at the, at the same time, it's this point, what's gone wrong, that is deeply contested. A secular worldview is particularly incoherent right at this point. It, it, it's particularly vulnerable right at this point because on the one hand, it holds that human life is just more or less evolved chemistry, um, that human beings are just a bunch of cosmic, co sorry, conscious cosmic sludge, and yet at the same time still wants to say that there is such a thing as right and wrong and that wrong far too often prevails over right, and it shouldn't. And you can't hold those two things together consistently. You just can't. And so as I say, this issue, this is a crucial issue. I mean, Romans 1 to 3 at one level has been a pretty hard slog and you're kind of, oh, golly, depressing, sin, problem, problem, sin. No, it's brilliant. It, perhaps more than most maybe other sections of the Bible, will give you the resources to be able to engage confidently and to interact incisively with the culture around you. And so we do well to learn from the Apostle. Because in deep submission to his Lord, Paul teaches us that what has gone wrong in the world is sin. As I say, it's a tough journey, but it's vital if we're to understand our world and to grasp the gospel. And as he comes to this conclusion of this first section of Romans, we learn three final things about this sin. It's surprising outcome its indiscriminate stain and the doorway to its cure. Surprising outcome, indiscriminate stain and the doorway to its cure. So first then, uh, the surprising outcome of sin. Romans 2, uh, if you are here last week, uh, you remember, ends with just a kind of total freak out, astonishing statement. Namely, that it is not the person who has the outward marks of belonging to God's people but the one whose inward heart is circumcised, whose inward reality has been touched and changed by God, it's that person that truly belongs to God. Now, of course, we live in a deeply personalistic and psychological and individualistic age that has learnt for 2,000 years at the feet of Jesus and his apostles and then sort of gone beyond, you know, way off into the deep end. And so this doesn't seem so astonishing to us, but to the original readers, it was. It was massive. It was massive. Because in effect, what Paul is saying uh, was just this. All the ways in which belonging to God used to make sense, they don't make sense anymore. All that it meant to be one of God's people as a part of his old covenant nation of Israel, it doesn't count anymore. Because you don't need to be a Jewish person to have a circumcised heart. It's a whole new day. 
which leads directly to the back and forth that we have here in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, uh, which feels, I think, quite a bit like an episode of Q&A. Uh, don't you think? There's, there's uh, you know, Tony Jones, he's there, he's moderating, he's trying to keep people together and all this kind of stuff. There's cut and thrust, there's attack and counterattack. At the end, there's judgment, there's dismissal. Someone stands up, pushes their chair back and walks out. It's a walkout, actually. It's pretty great fun, eh? Q&A. Because if it's a whole new day, if that's what Paul really is saying, if it's a whole new day, then what's the obvious question to ask? Do you get it? Do you see the obvious question to ask? What advantage has the Jew? I mean, what's the point of all that whole old covenant then? What difference does it make to work at all the ways in which being one of God's people used to be marked? All those food laws and the Sabbath and circumcision and uh, the whole nine yards, right? What advantage? What difference does it make? And just when you thought Paul was going to give a straight answer to a straight question, he turns the tables on us and he says, much in every way. Now, again, do you you feel the, whoa, we're heading off down that track now. Because what you expect him to say right in the heels of chapter 2 is nothing at all. Nothing at all. But that would be a fatal mistake and the Apostle Paul knows it and here's why. Remember, this whole section of Romans is all about sin but even more than that, it's about God's righteous character. The fact that he does things right, that he doesn't cut corners, that he doesn't shave the truth, that he doesn't wink at sin and especially that he doesn't break promises. Turns out this is going to be really, really important for you because if you're a Christian person tonight, what you do is rest in the promises of God. God's made you promises about eternal life, right? And can you trust him in the promises that he's made? Well, one way you can tell is whether you can trust him in other promises that he's made. And he made promises to Israel. You read them in the Old Testament. Wonderful, beautiful promises. Promises not just to bless Israel which would be enough, but promises to use Israel to be a blessing to the whole world. You may recall that when um, God spoke to Abraham, the great father of Israel, his promise was to bless him, to make him a great nation. And this was for a reason. It was so that Romans chapter 12, sorry, um, Genesis chapter 12, all the families of the earth would be blessed. From the moment of her conception, Israel was to be a river, not a pond. A river of God's blessing as it flowed to Israel and then through Israel. Not not a pond which simply got larger and larger and more and more stagnant and sick. And in exactly the same way, when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses, it's precisely the same. God calls Israel to himself. He says on Mount Sinai, you're my treasured possession out of all the earth. That's his blessing to her. And then he commissions her as a holy nation and a royal priesthood in Exodus chapter 19. A holy nation and a royal priesthood. That is that Israel as a nation, as a whole, was to do what priests always do, which is to mediate, to be the go-between between God and the rest of the world. That's the blessing through her. But Israel has failed in that calling. That's pretty clear now. 
She's not been a holy nation, says Jesus. She's not been a holy nation, says Paul. And particularly at chapter 2, verse 24, which we looked at last week, the unholiness of sin is so deeply a part of her national life, uh, the apostle says, that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of her. Suddenly, do you see why that's so important? She was supposed to take the name of God to the Gentiles in blessing, and instead she behaves so atrociously that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of Israel. She's not been a royal priesthood or a holy nation. She's entrusted with a mission, as the apostle puts it here in chapter 3, to bear the oracles of God. That was her job, to bear the oracles of God the very mind and will and blessing of God, but she has proven unfaithful to the task. And if you're following along, you'll realise that it leads to a really pressing next question. Will Israel's unfaithfulness stop God's plan? Do you see how it works? God was had a purpose. It was to bless all the families of the earth. And, and it was through Israel and Israel's failed and the question is will Israel's unfaithfulness stop God's plan will his purpose of blessing be thwarted will his intent be frustrated is God's blessing halted by sin that's the question is God's blessing halted by sin can you see why this is both a big question and actually where Paul takes it is to a really dangerous answer. It's a big question because if God's will and purpose to bless is stopped by our sin, and our sin pretty much infects everything that we do, then it's game over, isn't it? That's game over. That's the end of the line. And Paul's answer... Um, is this lovely little Greek uh, phrase? You can learn it. If so, you learn you can learn it here, right? May gonoito, which is quite a fun thing to say. Actually, it sounds like it's on a matter of a little bit. It may gonoito. It just means you've got to be kidding. And normally, there's at least one, if not two or three, exclamation marks at the end of that little sentence. Absolutely not. The unfaithfulness of Israel will not nullify the faithfulness of God. Even the apostle says, if everyone is a liar, God will be proved true. And in fact, verse 5 has Paul taking it one step further. He goes so far as to say that Israel's unrighteousness, I have no idea why the translators translate it injustice there because it's just the same word as righteousness that has been used all the way through. You know how big a word that is, right? Will Israel, Paul goes so far as to say that Israel's unrighteousness will in fact, listen to this, serve to confirm the righteousness of God. Rather than Israel's unrighteousness stopping the righteousness of God, rather than Israel's unrighteousness stopping his beautiful, promise-keeping, blessing-showering, suffering-fixing, evil-smashing righteousness, the apostle says it will confirm it. Now just pause for a moment and make sure that you take this in. Although Paul is talking specifically about Israel's sin, actually that just makes his point even more powerfully because her sin in the face of her mission is 
much greater than our sin in the face of our mission. And what we're being taught here is that God is greater than our sin. Of course God is greater than our sin. He takes Israel's sin and he overcomes it. He bends and breaks and outsmarts and countervails it. And actually Paul will explain in detail how that all works and it will take him all of chapters 9, 10 and 11 to do that. And God does exactly the same with the sin of the crucifixion of Jesus, the ultimate injustice and hatred and brutality, the unrighteous putting to death the only righteous one ever to live. And God the Father takes that horrific sin and he overcomes it and he bends it and he breaks it and he outsmarts it and he countervails it for the salvation of the whole world. And here's the point, you see. He can do the same with yours and mine as well. There is no mess that you can make that he can't fix up and take and bend it to his good purpose. There is no situation that you can get yourself into that is so bad that he can't get you out of it. There is no sin that is so dark that his light can't break into it. And you see the significance, actually, of what this is saying to us. We need never despair. We need never come to the end of the line. We need never lose our grip on hope because the power of God is so powerful The righteousness of God is so righteous. The grace of God is so gracious that it will overcome any opposition. He can go into any mess, even the mess that Israel made, and take it and fix it up. And he can do it with your messes as well. Which, of course, if you really grab hold of that point, okay, just just really allow that to swim around in your soul for a little bit, it can actually become pretty dangerous. Because if you run that line of thought backwards instead of forwards, if you look it to make So if you look to make that line of argument serve your sin rather than God's glory, then you could draw two conclusions. You see where the passage goes. The first one is at the end of verse 5. Hey, someone says to Paul, all right, okay, maybe you're right. If our unrighteousness serves to confirm the righteousness of God, well, guess what? It's totally unfair of him to condemn us for our unrighteousness. He should actually thank us, shouldn't he? Or again, you see it in verse 8, in a sort of general summarised form, let's just do evil so that good may come. In response to which, Paul is so gobsmacked that anyone could run the argument that way, that a response to grace could be so utterly self-absorbed that he won't even dignify it with an answer. He pushes his chair back and storms out and Tony Jones is left there wondering what's going on. But the point is this, right? 
If your grasp of God's goodness, if your awe at the sheer creative power of God's grace to undo sin and evil, to fix up mess and to find a way to grab it and take it and rest it into his purpose, if that has never prompted these questions in you, if it's never occurred to you that his grace could be that big, that big for you, if pretty much you basically have a view of God as a big wagging finger, then it's more than likely it's because we just have a shrunken, shriveled husk of an understanding of God's glorious grace. But not the apostle. He's in awe of it. More than most, he knows it. He's a murderer, a hater of God and his people. And God took him, him, used him. As he puts it at the end of chapter 11, right, when he comes back to all of these themes, uh, and he's just standing back and he's just looking at all the way in which God has been so utterly brilliant. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. This is fantastic what God has done here. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who, who could have picked this? Who has been his counsellor? Who's given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Which leads to the second point. Because the sin which God's grace has to overcome stains in an utterly indiscriminate manner. Uh, as I mentioned, um, Paul really, it, from chapter uh, 3, verse 9 uh, down to 20, is summarising uh, this whole section, uh, everything he said in the previous two chapters. And he does so, as I say, in pretty terrifying, stark fashion. I don't know if when uh, those verses were being read, you sort of you felt the sort of sheer intensity and ferocity of them. Everyone, he says. Everyone. Uh, Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, um, religious people, irreligious people. Everyone is under the power of sin. It doesn't matter whether you're educated or not. It doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or not. It doesn't matter whether you're privileged or not. When it comes to sin, no one is one jot better off than anyone else. Um, and hearing this, you sort of, you sort of this love of not at all. Not at all. Or as he puts it at the end of the section in verse 19, he says the whole world is held accountable to God. And that word held accountable means the end of the judging process, not the, the beginning of it. That is liable to condemnation. So hear what Paul is saying. So what he's been We've been hearing him say all along that the morally degraded pagan that we see in chapter 1, that the very upright, God-fearing, self-righteous Roman citizen at the beginning of chapter 2, that the absolutely scrupulously um, focused Pharisee, second half of chapter 2, all of them, are in precisely the same position when it comes to sin. 
that is different as those people might look on the surface. Those ways of life are all the expression of the same radical self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness of their hearts. And that's what sin is. What's more, just as we've seen how this can be uh, over the last few weeks, Paul restates it now, and I just want to say this is the brilliance of the Bible's worldview-shaping doctrine of sin. It's right here. This is the only thing that will enable you to make sense of the sin in our world is in these few verses here. Because I think a lot of people would say, ah, come on, Paul. Come on, you're just having a bad day, man. I mean, things are not so bad. People are not so bad. There are some good people out there. They can speak some truth, right? And, and there are people who aren't, you know, shedding blood with their feet and all that kind of stuff. Chill, baby, just kind of relax a little bit. It's okay. Lots of people do good. Lots of people are spiritually searching. But I want to invite you to look a little more carefully. Because the Apostle is giving us a definition of sin that is relational long before it ever becomes behavioural. It's relational long before it ever becomes behavioural. Notice how he describes this power of sin. He, he describes it in terms of a direction of the heart. He talks about having turned away. Um, he depicts it in terms of what you seek for. The, these are direction words. And so let me put it like this. I'm going to just let you dwell on this for a little bit. Sin is not so much a matter of whether you're doing bad things or good things. Sin is not so much a matter of whether you're doing bad things or good things. It's about whatever things you're doing, who you're doing them for. Sin is not so much about whether you're doing good things or bad things. It's about whatever things you're doing, who you're doing them for. And sin is that power over us and that impetus within us that makes us want to get away from God, not to be in his direction. To get out from under his gaze, to get out from under his authority, to get out from under his right to direct and assess your life. Sin is fundamentally keeping God at arm's length. And as we've seen again and again in this series, the fact is that there are two ways to keep God at arm's length. And, and I'm hoping that you know by now, because it's the last time we'll look at it for a little while, well, maybe till next week, um, but, but by now you kind of get, this is so sort of in you that this is not surprising anymore. That, that you can keep God at arm's length by being very, very bad and just flipping out and doing your own thing. That's one way. Or you can keep God at arm's length by being very, very good and doing the right thing. And all the while, deep in your heart, what you're doing is trying to cut a deal with God. You're trying to cut a deal with God. And you may never even get to conscious articulation of these words, but basically you're saying, God, you know what? I'll do the right thing by you just so long as you do the right thing by me. Let's just have it like that, shall we? I'll do the right thing by you, just so long as you do the right thing by me. 
And notice what's going on there. A person who's very, very good, doing all the right things, living a really upright, good, beautiful, middle-class life with a slight tinge of green. See, the text doesn't say... No, sorry, what's going on there is that person is not seeking God. They're seeking things from God. The text doesn't say no one seeks blessing from God. Of course people seek blessing from God. The text doesn't say no one seeks answers to prayer from God. Of course people all around the world seek answers to God uh, to prayer from God. The text doesn't say no one seeks forgiveness from God. Of course people want to have a clear conscience and some sense of having forgiveness from God. Of course they do, but those things are different from seeking God himself. Do you know this within yourself yet? Have you you got enough knowledge of the operations of your own heart to see how this can work? How so much of our serving, so much of our so-called doing good is just in the end all about you? Why don't you do all the crazy things that you see maybe other people doing? And so much of it's to do with you're just afraid that you'll blow your life up and you're too proud because you say, I'm not like one of those scumbags. It's just about you. Which is why Paul says, no one's really seeking God. Apart from that radically changed heart that we looked at last week, that circumcised heart, at best, all we're really doing is seeking things from God. Of course, people formally do good things. They help their neighbours and they do virtuous deeds and they give money a a little bit. On average, I think Australians give $50 a year to charity. I mean, out of an average income of $70,000. So there's a pretty generous kind of go, right? That's true. So they do some good things and they feel good about giving their 50 bucks. But you don't have to be any kind of psycho-spiritual genius to see what's going on there, do you? I mean, honestly. Because what we're looking at here through the lens of scripture is the heart, at the trajectory of the heart. And this lays us bare. And I'll I'll tell you what, you'll know how it's working for you when things go bad in your life. It's really interesting. When you feel like you're doing all the right things, when you're keeping your side of the deal with God, when you're doing all that you're supposed to do, you're a good person, you don't lie, and um, you know, I'm I'm doing my tax return this afternoon, and I don't I'm not cheating on my tax. You know, I'm a good, I'm not one of the three people in Australia who isn't cheating on his tax. I mean, uh, this present company excluded, of course. And life's not working out. Life's not working out for you. When the times are hard and the thought comes into your mind, why am I doing all this stuff? Why am I slogging it out like this? Why am I working so hard? Why am I bothering if this is how it turns out? Do you see what's going on there? It's when things are really hard in life, at that moment, that you find out whether you're in this to get God to serve you or for you to serve God. And Paul says, no one seeks for God, really. No one is righteous. 
There is no one who does good for goodness' sake. We do it for our own sakes. And that radical selfishness, whether it's in the form of some crazy, nuts kind of person like in Romans chapter 1, or whether it's in the form of a really incredibly moral, upright person in chapter 2, it's the same heart. It's the same heart. Now, let me just draw out um, one of the implications of this because it's uh, really, really significant, this um, utterly indiscriminate stain of sin. And I want to um, get into this by asking the question, what happens when one person thinks that they're better than another person? So just try and do this thought experiment. Try and think of someone that you just pretty much know that you're better than them. Okay? You are. I mean, you are, right? You are. You're better than them. They're just... Whatever is your pet sin that you don't do, but that they do do. Okay, so have, bring someone to mind who you know you're better than. Might be me. And you are actually probably better than me. You got them? Because this can be snobbery or it can be inverse snobbery. Okay, it's the same dynamic going on. And what happens when you think that you're better than someone? What begins as disengagement turns to dislike and ultimately to dehumanising. When you find yourself really lording it over someone in your mind, really feeling like you're better than them, and they're not doing things that are just sort of a bit awkward, but they're doing things that are really... You end up kind of turning them into it. You demonise them. You dehumanise them. And what this doctrine that Paul's teaching us here of what the theologians call the universal sinfulness of all human beings since the fall. The universal sinfulness of all human beings since the fall. What that does is to radically re-humanise everyone. For, for Paul the Apostle to look at Gentiles, whom, whom he previously regarded, frankly, spiritually as no better than dogs, as pagan sinners indulging in every kind of sexual and social depravity and corruption, as he describes in chapter 1. For him to have start out in his life for the first, what, 30-something years of just indwelling, inhabiting that worldview, and then he gets to chapter 3 and he says, am I any better than them? Am I, Paul, Pharisee, the, the most focused? I mean, the guy was just unbelievably strong-willed. Am I any better than them? And you know what he says through the gospel? Not at all. Not at all. I'm no better than that person. They are absolutely equal to me. Do you see how immensely powerful this truth is? How it radically reshapes human relationships. And it's so much for the Apostle Paul that he now dedicates his life to serving them and sacrificing for them, these Gentiles, and ministering to them, people he would have scorned and looked down upon and been contemptuous of. Now, through the gospel, he sees them and everyone in a completely different way. They are radically rehumanized. He is not better than anyone. And he'll live it. He'll live it. 
And ironically enough, it's the doctrine of sin that has done that for him. So, so I mean, you think about it, whenever, wherever you are, socially or economically or politically or vocationally, uh, there's always a temptation to look down on certain other people, right? Um, what are artists? I, I'm, I'm not an artist. I really don't have much of an artistic cell in my entire body. So I'm just, I'm just going on what I imagine, really. It's probably my prejudice. What do artists say of really boring middle-class people? Look at all those conservative, conformist, dullites. That's okay, because what do boring middle-class people say about artists? Look at all those lazy, crazy, useless, wannabe artists. Wherever you are, whatever you fit into, whatever sort of... There's always the sort of the, the others, the other. How often do politically left-leaning people, or frankly, politically right-leaning people, say of people on the other side, I'm no better than them? That's not, that doesn't happen, does it? That doesn't happen. What they say is, I'm a lot better than them. They should be altogether much more like me. But it's this gospel doctrine of sin that makes for a wonderfully level playing field. And it's the only thing that will do it for you. It's the only thing that will do it for you. To teach you to know in your heart, I'm no better. That's what Paul's telling you here. I'm no better. And it changes everything. Which leads us uh, towards the cure of sin, point three. Because the question presses, doesn't it? How are we going to fix this up? How's God going to fix this up, actually? And Paul tells us two things uh, that are the beginning of the cure, which he's going to get onto next week. I mean, chapter 3, verse 21. The first is at the end of his exposition of what the problem is and just before he really gets into the solution. He reaches the point in verse 19 where he says, you'll never be able to receive God's salvation unless your mouth is silenced. Do you see that? The whole, every mouth silenced before God. You'll never be able to get to the point of receiving God's salvation unless you shut up spiritually. What does that mean? It, it means that you stop making excuses. You stop offering explanations. You stop talking yourself up or, for that matter, talking yourself down. You just shut up. You see, some people in the face of their uh, sin will say, Ah, I don't care. That's all right. all right. Paul says, shut up. Shut up. There are other people who say in the face of their sin, yes, yes, I did wrong, God. I know I messed up, but, but I can do better next time. I can turn it around. I, I see that my motives are bad here, but, but I can change. And on and on and on it goes. And what God says is, shut up. Don't keep talking. Be silent. Make space. Get out of the way. Because as long as you haven't shut up spiritually in your heart before God, you're not ready for salvation yet. You can't receive the chapter 3, verse 21, cure for sin, unless you realise that you can't fix yourself up and that even trying to fix yourself up just makes it worse because every effort to somehow get it together and really try harder 
is just another effort in self-salvation and self-justification and self-sufficiency away from God, just making things worse again. And once more, this, this condition of shutting up, of being spiritually quiet before God doesn't mean beating yourself up. It doesn't, oh, I've done so much that's wrong. I'm so hopeless. I'm just too terrible for God. Shut up. Every mouth silenced. It's like that miraculous never will happen moment in Q&A when people actually listen. Stop being centred on yourself because the whole point of what Paul is doing to us in these verses is taking us to the end of ourselves. You've got to get to the end of yourself because that's the only way to be ready for the salvation which he gives in grace. All right, let's pause there. I've got one more thing to say which I'll finish up with. Um, But uh, there may be uh, questions. Um, of clarification um, where we've come may not, that's cool but I'll open it up and then I've, I've got one little thing to say and then we'll wind it up hard to ask a question after you've just been told to shut up isn't it really it's, uh, I, did, I did worry about that but you know what can you do, it's in the Bible Going, going, early supper. That's really good. The question time this morning, like 25 minutes, completely blew the service out. Kids' ministry was nuts. This is good. Um, What I want to do is kind of just uh, begin the process of moving from this part of Romans into the next part of Romans, okay? And um, I want to do that by going here. You see, I think it's true what Paul says, that we don't seek God naturally that no one seeks God naturally. Not unless he's doing something in our hearts. That's, in other words, supernatural. But the fact is that in his grace, he seeks us. And that's the gospel. He seeks us. Jesus Christ had the joy and glory of God's presence from all eternity. And he gave that up. And he took on our flesh and he came amongst people who showed no understanding. He came amongst people who, when they saw him, turned aside, every last one of them, even his disciples. They showed no kindness. Their throats were open graves as they cried, crucify him. The venom of vipers was on their lips. Their mouths were full of cursing and bitterness and their feet were swift to shed his blood and the way of peace they did not know because there was no fear before their eyes. Do you see the truth of Romans 3 is not abstract. It's what happened when every one of those types of people met Jesus in Jerusalem. That's where you see the truth of Romans 3. There was no fear of God before their eyes. 
but there was before the eyes of Jesus. And so in the purest love and grace and faithfulness, Jesus bore it all. He bore all of our sin, all of our turning, all of our open-throatedness. He bore it all to hell. And then he rose again over it in triumph. He was God seeking us when we would never seek God. He came to us. And as your heart grasps his grace, and maybe that's even in the very moment of this evening, that's something that's happening. You're just, you, you, you're getting a little more of God's grace to you. That he's come to you. As your heart grasps his grace and knows that love and dwells in that righteousness. In other words, as you're just a little bit restful before God. Silent before him. That's, that's where we're ending, right? Silent before him in awe and wonder and praise that he would come seeking us. Also the power of sin in your life to bring condemnation and death and destruction. It's, it's broken more and more. And you're set free to live for him. Amen.